God, as we have sung this morning, we do pray that you would be the center of this church. God, I pray as we look at your word, Lord, that you would show us the beautiful design that you have created from the very beginning of what it means to be a man, what it means to be a woman. God, I pray for you to give us open hearts this morning, give us wisdom to understand this text. And Lord, we pray that you'd guide us today, that you would give us insight beyond our own ability. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. Well, we are going to spend uh, the next uh, two weeks on this passage because of the amount of controversy that I think is found um, in these verses. Uh, Today, I am going to address the topic of gender roles in light of verse three. And my goal today is really to lay a foundation of what it means to be a man, what it means to be a woman, so that next week, uh, we can look at the practical implications of that especially in light of verses four uh, through 16. Now, just to kind of catch us up to speed, Paul has just finished a section, uh, chapters eight, nine, and 10, where he has explained how we ought to use our Christian liberties within the Christian life. So Paul in chapter 11 is beginning a whole new section that will run us through chapter 14, where he is dealing with basically this big issue of improper practices when the church at Corinth was gathered together. That's the big umbrella. And underneath that are three other issues that fit within that big focus. He's going to address women's role. He's going to address the Lord's Supper, an important sacrament. And then finally, he's going to address spiritual gifts. This is all in the context of the corporate worship gathering of the saints. Now, before we dive in this morning, and we're really only gonna look at verses two and three today. Um, I I think it'd be very helpful for me uh, on the front end here, just to be very clear about something that is true here at Pennington Park Church. And this might be helpful for uh, maybe those of you who are new at our church, maybe those of you who have been coming for just a short time. But you need to know that Pennington Park Church here, we are deeply committed to the authority of the scriptures, that we believe both in the authority and the sufficiency of God's word. And we have a high, high view of the word of God, and we hold that view graciously and humbly, but unashamedly. In fact, one of our church-wide core values here talks about that, that we are driven by the Bible. And I want you to know this morning that that is not some cute little phrase that we decided to slap up there on the lobby wall so that we can check the box of the Bible and then move on and talk about whatever we want to talk about and do whatever we want to do. No, we believe that the Bible is authoritative. We believe in its inerrancy. We believe in the sufficiency of the scripture. We believe that this book has power. And when we hold to that view here at this church and we try to demonstrate that both in the preaching and in the ministries of uh, this church. And church, just on a, on a personal level, uh, I just feel compelled to share with you this morning that I love the Bible. Like, I, I love God's word. Like, this, this book, I, I love this book because it, it teaches me about Jesus. It shows me who Christ is. It shows me the glory of God. It shows me who I am in light of who he is. And I just have to share with you, there's several weeks ago, um, man, I was, I was really struggling. I had a few days 
where I just felt deeply burdened and, and mixed in there with, with some anxiety. And I, I just honestly just felt spiritually dry. And, and I remember just sitting in my bed at night for, for just several nights in a row. And, and I grabbed my, my iPhone and I went to my Bible app and, and I pressed the audible button there. And I went through the Psalms. And I just had this voice just speaking the word of God over me. And I just remember just closing my eyes and just being immersed in the truth about who God is through the Psalms, just this, this voice from the audible uh, section of that Bible app. And I was just so greatly ministered. And I was just reminded again of the power of God's word and just how sweet it is. Uh, of course, Lindsay, my wife, walks into our room and is like, who, who's in our room? What voice is that? Like she, she was a little bit confused, but I was just reminded again of the power of this Bible. And I want you to know, I, I have an unwavering, an unwavering commitment to preaching this book, to letting the word of God do the work. And, and look, I, I love you dearly, but I have no, no intention. I have no interest in entertaining you. I have no interest in, in telling funny jokes, <clears throat> in telling feel-good stories. I have no interest in even preaching topical sermons that make you feel all warm and fuzzy. But I am relentlessly committed to preaching the word of God and standing before you week in and week out and saying this is what the Bible says, this is what has authority. And the reason why I am relentlessly committed to drawing us back into the word of God is because this book is unlike any other book. That this book, this is alive and active. It is sharper than any two-edged sword, Hebrews 4 tells us. And when you open your heart up to what the word of God says, it will change you. This is the only thing that will change you. This book will read you, will convict you. I, I was even just reading Psalm 19, and, and this, is not, this is not part of, of the sermon today, but I'm just gonna share this with you. I was reading Psalm 19 about what the word of God does to us. It was reading verse seven, it says, the law of the Lord, just listen to this. Even close your eyes for a moment. The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The, the commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The, the fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. It goes on and on, talking about what the word of God does to us when it gets inside of our hearts. And I wanna draw you to the power of God's word every single week. I want that for you. I want the, wise, the, the simple to be wise. I want you to be revived. I want you to find joy in here. I want your eyes enlightened. And look, my question for you this morning, this is not even part of the sermon, but do you long for this book? Do you crave the Bible? Do you desire, do you have this hunger for God's word to fill you and for this to be the priority of your life? Because at this church, this is what we hold up every single week. And by God's grace, I'm committed to preaching this book no matter what it costs me, no matter what might happen, I am going to preach this book week in and week out. And I think that's important to say 
especially in light of the fact that culture continues to push up against us. You and I, it is critical that we trust in what the Bible says more than what the culture is saying. Because the, the yeah, amen to that. Because if you've noticed, the cultural message all around us stands directly in contrast to what the Bible says. The culture says, trust in yourself. Look for the answer within, promote yourself. And my job every week is to stand before you and to exhort you and say, the answer's not found within. That's actually the problem. The answer is found in here. The answer is found in Jesus. And so look, we're, we gather here and we, we remind ourselves of this because more than ever, you are going to be challenged to stand and to hold fast to what the Bible says more than ever. And, and so follower of Jesus, you need, to, you need to plant your flag in this book, no matter what it will cost you in the workplace, in the schools, in your friendships, you need to hold fast to the authority of the Bible. Not the media, not the social media, not your political party, not the latest book or article that you have read, not worldly ideologies, not your emotions or your feelings, but the authority of your life must be the word of God. And I share that with us today because we've been trying to demonstrate that as we've walked through the book of 1 Corinthians. We have tackled some very unpopular topics like church discipline, like sexual morality, like divorce and remarriage, like what to do with our Christian liberties and our Christian rights. And, and today we are going to add to that list, talking about gender roles, talking about what it means to be a man and what it means to be a woman. And I, and I wanna say on the front end here that if you are here today and you are exploring your sexuality, maybe you identify with the LGBT community, maybe you even lean towards more uh, egalitarian or, or more within the, the feminist movement or the second wave of the, look, I want to say on the front end here, this is a safe place for you to come and to hear what the Bible says. And, and yet this morning, I'm going to lay out before us what the Bible says about what it means to be a man, what it means to be a woman, and I'm gonna do so with, with the authority of the scriptures and with the clarity that God has given me. And if you're here today just kind of exploring, I would love to have a conversation with you. I would love to talk to you about what the Bible says about this topic, but, but we're, gonna, we're gonna dive in and see what the scriptures have to say. And yet before we do that, I think it's important for me just to frame this conversation um, because of, of where the culture is right now today. So let me, let me give three reasons why this topic right now is very important. Here's the first reason, is that gender fluidity has become accepted and normative in the culture in which we live in. Look, over the last several decades, our culture has entered into a post-Christian, pluralistic, post-modern phase in its approach to gender roles. And as a result, gender fluidity has become the default mindset within the culture that we live in. Let me give you an example. When you are trying to create a profile on Facebook, there are over 70 different options for choosing your gender on Facebook when you're creating that profile, over 
70. And I think for many people, the issue of sexuality, the issue of gender identity and gender roles are convoluted because of this growing rejection of what the Bible says. Look, the reality is, is that it is taboo today to talk about manhood, to talk about womanhood in any fixed way because our culture believes in the right of gender interchangeability. And you probably have heard this, this message being preached in our culture today, this message that declares you can choose whoever you want to be. You can choose whatever gender you want to be. You can choose whoever and whatever you want to love. That, that you, can, you can experiment with, with whoever and whatever strikes your fancy. I'm sure you've heard that message in our culture today. What's underneath that is the mantra that the only way that you will be happy the only way that you will be alive, the only way that you will be liberated, the only way that you will be truly human is if you act on your impulses and your natural desires. That the culture says that's what it means to be authentic. That's what it means to be yourself. That's what self-actualization is all about. In church, we need to be on guard against that that the culture that we live in is adrift. The culture is a rudderless vessel in the sea with no map, no compass, and no idea where all of this is headed. And the implications of this are absolutely devastating. The implications of rejecting what the Bible says, rejecting what God, the creator, has, has really designed from the beginning, rejecting that and allowing this gender neutral, gender dysphoria, gender fluidity to become the default mindset, the implications of that are absolutely devastating. And yet on one hand, we should not be surprised the world around us, we, we cannot act or expect non-Christians to think and act like Christians, but we need to be aware of this accepted and adopted mindset in the workplace, when you go to work throughout the week, in the school system, and in the entertainment world around us. Now, this leads me to the second reason why I think this is important, is I think that there is a shallow understanding of gender roles in the church. Unfortunately, what tends to happen in the culture trickles into the church. And so many people struggle when they approach certain passages in the Bible that talks about gender roles that many people struggle with, is this a timeless principle? Is this for all people at all times and all places? Or is this principle just cultural? Was this just for the people of the Bible in the Bible times and now it's outdated? Right, some people struggle with, with questions related to gender roles, like why do we not allow females to be pastors, females to preach, but we also don't follow head coverings, this command in 1 Corinthians 11. What's up with that? Or, or the question of why is the role of the husband not interchangeable with the role of the wife? Or questions like how should biblical manhood and womanhood impact what it means to be a man or a woman, a husband or a wife or a parent. 
Or for example, if, if your child or, or grandchild came up to you and asked you the question, daddy, what makes you a daddy and mommy a mommy? How are you guys different? Would you know how to answer that question biblically without just talking about the fact that you have different body parts? Or what if you're having coffee with a friend and your friend looks at you and asks you the question, what is your manhood for? What is your womanhood for? What's the purpose of being a man and being a woman? See, I think many in the church at best maybe have adopted the following position where yes, men and women are different. Maybe there are these two different boxes here, but many in the church would say we shouldn't prescribe what goes inside those boxes. Instead, let's focus on some of the universal Christian virtues like humility or the fruit of the spirit and just let each person kind of figure out manhood and womanhood on their own. I think because of this brewing cloud of perplexity in the church and in combination with this worldview from the culture that's pushing up against us, there is great confusion. And I think within many marriages, when we look at issues within these marriages, a lot of them can, are stemming back from this confusion about what it means to be a man, what it means to be a woman, what it means to be a husband, what it means to be a wife. And so the sense of urgency on this topic to have biblical clarity about gender roles cannot be overstated. Because on top of that, the, the culture's accelerated speed, and it's been fast here, of, of normalizing gender fluidity, I think has created a temptation for those in the church to become more and more tolerant of that view. With just the speed of it, the, the temptation is for us to become so familiar with it that either we tolerate it or it starts to impact how we understand our roles within marriage of what it means to be a husband and a wife. So we need to stand on what the Bible says and deepen our understanding of this topic. Thirdly here, I think another reason is that there's only one path for men and women to flourish. I think a gendered neutral world tries to convince us that manhood and womanhood aren't important or that a clear distinction between men and women, it's too restrictive, it's too harmful, it's too detrimental to what it means to thrive as men and women. And yet what's ironic is that the LGBT community, which it's Pride Month right now, which is unbelievable that there's a whole month dedicated to celebrating something so perverse. And I just wanna remind us today I wanna remind us that as you are engaging with others who think differently than what we think about what the Bible says, I wanna remind us that there, there is more than just two options. There's more than just hating people who think differently than us and, and even accepting what they believe. There's a third option, and that's to disagree but still to love, right? You don't need to hate and you don't need to adopt and agree with their position, you can disagree and still love and be kind to them and show them Jesus. That is the Jesus way. 
Just wanna remind us of that in light of this month. But what's ironic is that the LGBT community rejects much of Orthodox Christianity for the sake of flourishment, that Christians are on the wrong side of history. But that simply cannot be the case. There, there are not two different paths for men and women to flourish. It's not God's way and the world's way. There's only one path. There's only one way for us to flourish, and it's God's way. God has given us a unique form and calling and function. Look, God did not create mankind and take a step back and think to himself and have this dialogue with the Trinity and say, man, how can we make them miserable? How can we keep them from flourishing? Oh, I know. Let's create gender distinction. That'll do it. That'll keep them from flourishing. No, no, no. God has created gender distinction for our joy and for us to flourish. This is intentional. And so this is not unimportant. This is not boring. This is vitally important for what it means to thrive as a follower of Jesus. And I want to unfold for us the beauty of God's intentional design of what it means to be a man and a woman. Look, we have something better to offer the culture around us as it relates to gender roles. We have a better vision of what it means to thrive. And when you and I live out what the Bible says and we are flourishing, perhaps the culture would look at how we're living and say, man, that's interesting. You guys are filled with joy. You guys are flourishing. Tell me more about this. And, and could it be that if we live out gender roles according to what the Bible says, that they are wooed into Jesus and the gospel? That's my hope for us as we look at this. There's so much more that I could say. Should probably do a long sermon series on this, but we're gonna dive in and see how the Lord leads us today. The, 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 the big idea, the big thing I want us to see today from, very, uh, from verse three is this timeless principle. All right, the timeless principle. As we jump into 1 Corinthians here, chapter 11, verse two, Paul uh, is commending the Corinthians in their ability to follow certain traditions that he has set for them, but then he turns to verse three and shows them an area that they were not following faithfully. And it has to do with gender roles. Now, most of this passage, I think, hinges on how you understand the word head. Okay, in verse three, Paul uses this word three different times in three different relationships. And I think by bringing in God the Father and God the Son, he's grounding this as a timeless Principle. Notice verse three, it says that Christ is the head of every man, the husband is the head of every wife, and God is the head of Christ. Now, what I'm going to lay out before us today is that this timeless principle is that men and women are equal in value, equal in worth, but have distinct roles and functions. Okay, equal but distinct. And one of the distinctions, according to verse three, in their roles is that men have been given authority over women in the church and in the home in order to flourish. All right, equal in value, equal in worth, but diverse in their God-given roles. And again, this principle, I think, hinges on how you understand the word head in part. This word Head in the Greek is the Greek word kephale, and it means literally head, all right? So this word shows up 
76 different times in the New Testament in 68 verses. And the vast majority of the cases throughout the New Testament when this word is used literally is referring to the person's physical head on their body, all right? Just like 1 Corinthians 11, verse six. But used figuratively, this word can be interpreted in two different ways. This word could be interpreted as source or authority, source or authority. So male headship could mean source, meaning that all women come from man because God in creating Eve, creating woman, took a rib out of Adam. So every woman can trace back their source of their origin to man, okay? And there's decent support for this position. Now, the other interpretation is that headship means authority, meaning that man has authority over the woman, that God has given man the position of leadership and responsibility with this authority. And I personally, in our church, we believe that this interpretation is much more convincing. Not only historically, but even on a literal level, the the head holds the brain where we make decisions and control the body. The, The head is the command and control center of the body. And I think from here, it's a small and natural step to the figurative sense denoting authority rather than arguing that head is the source of the rest of the human body, which doesn't make any biological sense, all right? And and furthermore, the way that Paul uses headship of man over woman, when he's comparing this to Christ over the church, like in Ephesians, does it four times in Ephesians, every time it refers to authority. So I'm in favor of headship to refer to authority. I think it makes the most sense throughout the New Testament But even if you look at verse three for a moment, if head was to mean source, then you might have some Trinitarian issues. Because what he says here is that God is the head of Christ. God is the source of Christ as if God created Jesus. You've got some Christology issues, some Trinitarian issues there. And I think it makes much more sense theologically for this word to mean authority. I'm gonna give you five reasons in a moment why I think that's the case. But one thing to note is I do believe that this principle is timeless. Paul grounds this in the relationship between God the Father and God the Son, meaning that this principle is for all people, all times, in all places. Now, what Paul does with this principle throughout the rest of chapter 11, we'll get to this next week in verses four through 16, Paul takes this timeless principle and he then applies it to first century Corinth. And what he does is he shows us that the cultural expression of this timeless principle that has something to do with head coverings. Okay, and we'll get to that next week, all right? But because I, because our church holds to headship, meaning authority, the way this plays out within gender roles is what is called biblical complementarianism. Biblical complementarianism. I'm gonna unpack more of what that means next week. I'm gonna compare it with some other views. But in back in 2019, um, our elders, our staff, we took a deep dive on this topic and we actually created an official position uh, it's, in, it's in a position paper. It's on our website. If you go to beliefs, it's on the far right-hand side with some other position papers. And what we try to do in that paper is 
we try to not just highlight the fence, like what women can't do, but we also try to show kind of the playground for women, what women can do, how we want to empower women. But let me just share with, uh, with you the, the uh, part of the intro uh, to that paper. We said, while equal in value, women and men are distinct and complementary in how they image their creator. Complementarian theology emphasizes not only the differences, but also the dependence in how both men and women need one another to fully image God. Gender complementarity within equality is God's means for ordering his world so that his image is manifested and glorified most beautifully. I wanna draw your attention to this idea of being equal but distinct. One of those distinctions is found in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse three, within male headship authority based on how we understand this word in the New Testament. This morning, I wanna provide five additional reasons why we hold to a complementarian view, why headship means authority. Here's the first one, is that this idea is grounded in the Trinity. It is grounded in the Trinity. Now, you might be wondering, Pastor, why are you bringing the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit into this topic? Well, the short answer is, is because God did. Genesis chapter one, verse 26 says, then God said, let us make man or mankind in our image after our likeness. Now the us there is the Trinity. And what this is telling us is that God fashions male and female in the image of the Trinity. So the beauty in distinction between men and women ultimately reflects the beauty of the Trinity. Follow this with me. When you think about the mystery of the Trinity, the fact that we have three persons, three distinct persons, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, three in one, you notice that these three are equally divine, equal in worth, equal in value, and yet the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit have different roles. They have different functions. We see this all throughout the scriptures. We see the Father having authority over the Son, like John chapter 5, verse 30. We have the Son who's obedient to the Father. We have the fact that the Son sits at the right hand of the Father and not the Spirit. Now, does that make God chauvinistic or oppressive to Jesus the Son? No. So authority is not automatically a bad thing. Authority is not automatically domineering. And submission is not automatically a bad thing or something that makes you inferior. So in the same way, men and women created in the image of the Trinity have equal worth and value, but distinct roles. So I think part of the problem with an egalitarian or a feminist view is a theological problem related to the Trinity. That, that position, I'll unpack that next week, that position takes the Trinity, takes the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit and concludes that they can do the same things. They are interchangeable in their role and function. That's not something that we see in the scriptures. Secondly, though, another reason is the order of creation. Genesis chapter two, very simply, man was created first and then woman was created. Like this may not sound very profound, but God could have created men and women at the same time. 
He could have created woman before man, but he didn't. He has this distinct order, and I think the order is important not to communicate value, but to communicate role distinction. Now, there are two places in the New Testament where this comes up. This comes up in chapter 11, verse eight of 1 Corinthians, where Paul says, man was not made from woman, but woman from man. And then this comes up in 1 Timothy chapter two, verses 12 and 13, where Paul says, I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. Rather, she is to remain quiet. For Adam was formed first and then Eve. Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. Now, Paul is talking about leadership between men and women in the church, and Paul holds up male leadership. But notice in 1 Timothy 2, where does Paul ground his argument? Does he ground it in culture? Does he ground it in preferences? No, he grounds it in the creation account referring to Adam and Eve, making this a timeless principle for all people at all times and all places. I think there's theological meaning to the creation order here of men and women. It wasn't random. This was not a divine coin flip where the father says, all right, Holy Spirit, call in the air, men first or women first. Like, no, he, he was intentional and to communicate something about role distinction. Thirdly, I think another reason is the design of woman. Turn with me to Genesis chapter two. Genesis two, verses 18 through 23, we notice something about the role of the woman. In verse 18, it says that it is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit, literally suitable for him. Okay, so in creating woman, God does not create woman to have equal authority with a man or a co-leader, but creates her as a helper, as a supporter, as a coming alongside of man. Now, this is the first time that God created and, and took a step back and said, this is not good. Man to be alone, not a good thing, right? Man, this should humble us and help us to understand that this complementary view of, of needing women in order to fulfill our role, we're interdependent. We'll talk about that more next week. But what's interesting about these verses is that the way that God takes Adam through this process, like verse 18, God says, I'm gonna create this wonderful helpmate for you. And you would anticipate that verses 19 and 20, God starts to create Eve, but he doesn't. We notice Adam trying to live out his assignment from verse 15 to tend to the garden, starts naming animals. And it's not till a few verses later that God creates Eve. It's almost like God's taking Adam through this process for him to feel and to understand his need for a helper, for a teammate, for him to say, I cannot do this alone. That's not to say that God made a mistake. That's not to say that God was worried that man was going to mess this up. This is to communicate God's beautiful design from the very beginning. We also see in verse 23, Adam is the one who names woman. That's important because all throughout the Bible, especially in the Old Testament, when someone is naming someone else or naming something, that is them exercising authority and leadership. We saw this with Adam, even displaying his authority over the animals, naming them. And then fourth here, the responsibility of man, I think communicates this as well. Who did God give the command to 
when he said, you shall not eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. He gave that command to Adam, all right, before Eve was created. Now, Adam was responsible for passing that command on and carrying out that command together with Eve. And yet, what we see in Genesis chapter three, when sin entered the world, we have Satan through the serpent having this conversation with Eve, and Adam is nowhere to be found. Eve falls into temptation, sins, Adam follows her leadership into that. And then God shows up in chapter three, verse nine. Notice what he says. He says, but the Lord God called to the man and said to him, where are you? Look, that's important because when God comes to confront his creation after they sin for the very first time, He goes directly to the man. He goes to Adam. Now you might say, well, how's that fair? Eve played the major role there. Adam was just playing a minor role. Precisely. That is precisely the issue there because Adam was not leading. He was not exercising his authority in leading Eve well. He was being passive. God holds him accountable because of his responsibility to exercise authority and to lead Eve well. And I think that shows us something about role distinction. And then fifth here, finally, I think the consequences of sin in Genesis chapter three shows us God declares the effects of sin upon man and women, and there are clear differences based on their distinct roles. If you even see the consequences that are laid out here are a distortion of God's beautiful design for men and women. There are different effects for men, different effects for women. I think that displays that roles are not the same. Notice the consequences of sin. Genesis two, God gives Adam the authority. And then we see throughout Genesis that man will abuse that authority, that leadership. In Genesis two, God creates woman to be this helper. And yet in Genesis three, one of the results of sin and the fall is that women will try to usurp that authority over man. Just, yeah, when you just think about this for a moment, just think about this logically. If male authority and male leadership, women submitting, women being helpers, if that was a bad thing, if that was a product of the fall, which is what an egalitarian and a feminist will argue, then wouldn't we expect when you come to the New Testament, when you come to us being in Christ, that that is addressed and even reversed? Wouldn't you see in the New Testament that, oh man, we messed this up in the Old Testament. This was not good. This was a product of the fall. So in the New Testament here, the roles can be interchangeable. In fact, between a husband and a wife, just figure out who's gonna lead based on your personality, based on your strengths and weaknesses. We would expect that if this was a problem, but we don't see that at all. In fact, in the New Testament, what you see this picture of headship and submission, leadership and helper reinforced in much more beautiful ways, like Ephesians 5, where Paul calls the husband the head over the wife as Christ is the head over the church, that husbands are called to love their wives as Christ has loved the church and gave himself up for her. Women are called, wives are called to submit to their husbands. And we do all of this in Christ. I've got to land the plane here, but I wanted to share all of this today 
for two reasons. Number one, clarity. I wanted to lay a foundation for us as we talk about headship, as we understand verse three in 1 Corinthians 11, because next week we're just gonna unpack the practical implications of that view. We're gonna deal with verses four through 16. But then secondly, I hope this is encouraging for us today. Wanted to share this because husband and wife, you will fail in this. Husbands, you will fail time and time again to lead and love your wife as Christ leads and loves the church. Wives, you will fail in following and submitting to your husband the way that the church submits to Christ. And I wanna encourage, I just wanna say that so we can exhale for a moment, but I want to encourage us because in those moments of failing, those are tangible reminders that I can't, but Jesus can. That I can't fully fulfill this. I'm gonna try, I'm gonna aim for this, but Jesus is the only one that can perfectly fulfill his role in both ways. Jesus is the perfect blueprint for both the husband and the wife. Jesus is such a great example for husbands as Jesus leads the church and also for the wife as Jesus, we see him time and time again in the New Testament, submitting and following the father, like John chapter five, verse 30, or the garden of Gethsemane. Jesus is our answer. That Jesus is what we need, both his example and the grace and the help that he provides. Look, for us to think about gender role, gender distinction, that's really, really helpful. But I think the core issue is sin. The core issue is what is in our hearts. Our hearts are sick. And the remedy is found in the gospel of Jesus Christ who paid for our sin, set us free from the bondage of sin. And now Jesus sets the example for how we need to fulfill our roles as men and women. And I can't wait to unpack that more next week. Let's pray together. God, we praise you and we thank you. Thank you, oh God, for giving us, Lord, strength this morning, being, uh, being able to understand this text a little bit better. God, I pray as we stand against the culture's view on this matter, would you give us a resolve to stand firm? Lord, no matter what it costs us, Lord, no matter what the consequences are, God, help us to stand upon your word. God, I pray for those who are exploring Lord, what it means to be a man, what it means to be a woman. I pray for those who are wrestling with this. Lord, I pray specifically for those who have felt, Lord, the sinful abuse of this principle. God, I pray that you'd minister to them. God, I pray as a church that we would stand against all forms of abuse on this topic. And Lord, give us, Lord, grace. Lord, when we fail, help us to turn to Jesus. We thank you for him. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.